Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. So it was really becoming problematic to run the kind of firm I wanted to be with just that one partner. There's a lot of really successful solo firms. We, in my opinion, were one of those successful solo firms. But we were having these growth limitations and we were getting plateaued. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from Danielle Subkis-Cheek of Houston, Texas. Like many of our guests, Danielle was suggested to us by a few of the former guests on the show. She's been recognized several times by different publications in the accounting world, and we actually cover most of those in the intro. But she's also very well connected, which I believe led to the multiple recommendations I received to request her time for our show. Danielle is highly accomplished, and I must say very forward-thinking as well. I don't want to give it away, but in addition to the usual conversation we have about her career... She shares with us her recent decision to join a much larger practice so that she could better see her dreams fulfilled for the services that she'd like to provide to her clients, as well as the resources she'd like them to have access to. At the time of the recording, it was all very fresh, so I really appreciate her being willing to share her story with us. If you find this episode has given you insight into your own dreams and plans, please make sure you subscribe to the show via iTunes or directly on the website at whereaccountantsgo.com. Once again, that's www.whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Danielle Subkis-Cheek of Houston, Texas. Well, good afternoon, Danielle. Thank you so much for scheduling this today. I appreciate you making time for us. Of course. Wonderful. Well, for the audience, we have Danielle Subkis-Cheek from Houston, Texas on the line today to share her career story with us. In addition to being recommended actually by two of our former guests, Danielle's been recognized by CPA Practice Advisor on their 40 under 40 list for the last four years, actually. She's the recipient of the 2016 AICPA Outstanding Young CPA Award And she was also named to two years list for the most powerful women in accounting by CPA practice advisors. So that's an interesting mix. Danielle, I always like to start at the beginning with all our guests. So we get an idea, not just of where you are today, but how you got there and and really where you came from. What initially led you to accounting as a possible career in the first place? It was a little bit of dumb luck, actually. I was working (laughs) in politics, decided that politics wasn't the right fit for a myriad of reasons, but decided to finish out my degree in political science. And I was at Rice University, which at the time did not have an accounting department anymore. But Jim Turley, the former chairman of the board for EY, 
had gone to Rice when there was an accounting department. And so EY actually recruited from Rice University for students that had no background in accounting. And so I, I didn't know what to do, so I fell into accounting. Interesting. While you were still getting your degree in political science. Yes. Wow. Okay. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because I had noticed that. I wanted to ask you about that. What I guess what interested you in political science in the first place? Did you have aspirations of going into politics or what were you doing exactly? You know, it was kind of one of these political science, economics, and policy studies. A lot of the work I did was more on my policy studies was in distributive justice and my policy stuff was a lot of in like efficient tax policy to get tax policy the way you would want to have an intended benefit or an intended consequence of the, not necessarily how to do the taxes, but how you should design the policy. And so that kind of information I thought was really interesting. I love the economics and determining utility and trying to predict outcomes, game theory. I found it very intellectually stimulating. Okay. Okay. So there was a little bit of economics and accounting tax <laughs> yeah. in there originally as well. But not okay. tax preparation or accounting in the purest sense, but in the theory of the policies that relate to it. Okay. I love that in the purest sense. That's a good point. So you went to EY as your first position out I of did. college or was that an internship? I did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we didn't do an internship because I had no background in accounting when I was hired by EY. It would have been pretty hard to actually do an internship because I would have not known what to do at all. I had one accounting class when I started. Wow. What did you start out doing at EY? They actually had a program at the time where they would send students off to get master's in accountancy that had no background in accounting. It was a time when there was a shortage of accountants. And so they went after trying to find non-traditionally trained accountants, which is a thought process I've actually carried forward and hired staff before that have non-traditional backgrounds as well. Interesting. While you were going to school, did you work in audit or tax? or? I was in audit. Um, oh, the first, okay. It was a two-summer program. The first summer, you didn't have any client responsibilities. The second summer, you're not quote, supposed to have a lot of client responsibilities, but you've, you know, you have what you have. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So you're effectively sort of working part-time at the same time going to school Mm -hmm. with with EY. Okay. Interesting. How long were you with EY? Only about just shy of four years, I think it was. Okay. Did you have a specialty while you were there or? I was mainly in the health sciences and did IBNR testing for Medicare Advantage companies. So really specialized. (laughs) Well, you you learned it from the ground up. So, yeah, (laughs) you're the first political science major we've had on the show. That oh, uh, really? Yes, yes. This is a unique story for sure, for sure. So, what did you do after EY? I actually went to an IT company and did project management for custom software development. Okay, how did you? So another really logical leap right there. Uh, As most of your seniors know, seniors off your listening in. When you're running a job, you're pretty much acting like a project manager. I really enjoyed that project management aspect. I had somebody that I knew that they owned a company. They were a Rice Connection. They really pursued me very hard to try to get me to come on to their company to run projects for them because they knew I was good at that component of it. I didn't have the IT background that the rest of the team did, but the project management piece of it made sense and worked out. And I, I learned some IT along the way. You know, I can't code, but I can at least figure it out along the way and figure out what our conversation about is and be able to follow the logic, which has actually become a very useful skill set when I had my own firm and 
when I'm talking to clients and having a just general understanding of how network architecture works, as well as how software databases are structured and, and how to design queries, even though I can't personally write the query, understanding how it works makes a whole world of difference. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, that liaison kind of position is, is very important. That's interesting. You know, people generally get the best jobs through connections as opposed yes. to the whole advertising route and, and that kind of thing. So, <laughs> so you went into audit without any prior, you know, accounting background. Then you went into IT with no prior IT <laughs> background. Yep. Yep. yep, yep. Uh, just a set of skills, though, that carried over very well. How, how long were you with the IT company or, I guess, in the project management space? So with the IT company, it was less than a year. The okay. economy turned while we were there. Uh, small business. I noticed that the company was not doing well. Told the president of the company that it, you know, it's not looking good. Even though I don't have access to your bookkeeping, it, it's. I know our numbers were not in good shape. So when it came time for laying off half the company, I had the privilege of going first. But you know, I saw the writing on the wall, so I'd already started looking for positions and realized while I was there, I actually really, really enjoyed the accounting and missed the accounting component of it and wanted to go back into public accounting and still continue that project management component. So I went back into a small firm. Oh, okay. At what point did you start your own practice? I started my own practice about four and a half years ago. Were there a few moves in there in the middle? Or No, I, guess, I, was, what are the I was at a small 20 to 25 person firm for about four years or so. Oh. Decided it wasn't the right fit for a partner position there and instead started my own firm about four and a half years ago. And, and the big surprise is that I just recently joined PKF Texas, which is the second largest independent accounting firm in Houston, as a director. Oh, well, congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> wonder if I'm full of surprises. Really... <laughs> yes, you move fast. <laughs> director, wow. Okay. Well, and if you consider yeah, four and a half years fast, I mean. <laughs> well, yes. No, I'm not that familiar with PKF myself. I tend to be more familiar with some of the, I guess, more Southern firms in Texas. Tell us about PKF. You said it's the second largest in that area? Independent. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Second largest independent firm. Okay. Yep. Full service firm. Been around since the 80s. Of course, a member of PKF International that was founded, I believe, in London. Okay. And what's your role going to be with PKF exactly? I'm a director in their entrepreneurial advisory services group, which is pretty much their consulting arm. And so I'm planning to grow that consulting component of the business. I'm curious, how do they define entrepreneurial businesses? Is there a size that you're you're basically working with? You know, we work with everything from pre-revenues all the way up to middle market. I think it's more of a mindset, more so than an actual size of a business. Because you can be entrepreneurial spirited, within even a major corporation, in my opinion. So I think it's just a mindset as well as it covers the whole gambit of our client base where we're using those small, even pre-revenue companies all the way up to middle market, a lot of them owner-managed or private equity-backed. Okay. So how long did you have your own practice? About four and a half years. Okay, four and a half. All right. I was getting that confused with the other firm there for a little while. So that must have been a major decision for you to look at joining another firm. What was, the, I guess, that not process like, but I mean, what were the, the major factors in your mind in, in coming to that decision? 
So one of the things that has been a struggle since I started my own firm was practice continuation. As a solo firm with only one partner, and we didn't have a tax department when we started, my background wasn't in tax. So we really focused on being a forensics, a test, and consulting practice. And it's really hard to run one of those practices at that size and a solo size. I ended up having three staff with me as well, but it's still hard to run that. And I was always worried of what if something happens to me? What happens to everyone around me if something happens to me? The clients are not well served. The staff potentially could lose their jobs. And there was always this underlying fear of practice continuation. And my attorney, I'd been working with him for a while on trying to find and identify another firm that would, a lot of the smaller firms, what they'll do is they'll do handshake deals between other firms of if something happens to me, you'll step in, run my firm and vice versa. Well, I wasn't able to identify another firm that was like mine, that my size point that we could do this handshake deal. Everybody else had other partners and we looked for other partners and we couldn't find the right fit. And we, we just kept looking and looking and looking. We looked at some small acquisitions, nothing was the right fit. And my attorney was the one that recommended, well, if you can't look sideways and you can't see anything down, you're going to have to look up if you want to solve this problem. So we kind of started testing waters. I'd actually met the managing director, Kenneth of PKF several years ago, actually right after I first started my firm at a networking event. And they had always been a very friendly firm with me, very kind to me, treated me like a professional. And it it just, it was the right fit, right time, right firm, right fit. Hmm. Wonderful. I'm curious, do you have any advice or thoughts for other practices going through that same situation where they're they're seeing a practice continuation issue, you know, small practices other than obviously uh, have one looking I was going to say my my advice is probably have something. Most firms don't have anything. For us, we put stuff in place, but we couldn't put it in place the same way I wanted to. So we had a backup plan and everybody had a copy of the backup plan, but it wasn't in my opinion, good enough. And it wasn't good enough to protect my clients and it wasn't good enough to protect my family and my staff. So I would say just have something. Even if you can't get anything formal yet, work towards getting the formal, but at least have a plan because you don't know what could happen. Mm. You you are very forward-thinking because I think most individuals at the four-and-a-half-year mark, you know, four-year mark of having their own practice, they're probably just happy if they're they're making a living and they have some smoothness to their schedule, <laughs> you know that it's, it's my not schedule has never been anymore. smooth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the nature well, of our work is not a sit behind a desk smooth schedule. It's a go 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 pace. <laughs> it's interesting you were working with an attorney for that as well. I I didn't I, maybe that's common. And I just don't know it. Is that was that specifically the the reason for the arrangement to help to help you you know locate a plan <laughs> a continuation well, plan? This, so my attorney is Frank McElroy actually, and he is the go to CPA lawyer in town. Like he oh. only represents CPAs, so he's very familiar with everything that needs to happen. We were actually at one point waiting for the state board to vote on some rules about residence managers because we thought we would be able to use that path, and so I'd been working with him very closely on trying to make sure we had a plan in place. He didn't act as like exactly a matchmaker, but he knows every firm in town. So that wasn't the role. Actually, I'm conflicted out of my attorney because he's also a attorney for every CPA firm in town on this transition. So it wasn't the attorney that was 
brokering a deal at all. It was mainly he was trying to help me on the practice continuation component because he saw the risk as well for me. And this is one of, one of the areas I've been concerned about for a long time. And especially doing audit work, we had to send our audits out for an EQCR review every single time because we didn't have a second partner review. And so for our insurance purposes, we had to have a second partner review. That means we have to send it outside the firm. So it was really becoming problematic to run the kind of firm I wanted to be with just that one partner, there's a lot of really successful solo firms. We, in my opinion, were one of those successful solo firms, but we were having these growth limitations and we were getting plateaued because we couldn't get past these certain hurdles, for lack of a better word, on how to handle this particular situation. You know, we'd sometimes not be able to win very large engagements because we couldn't scale up fast enough. And I value my staff so greatly that I would have a huge problem of ramping up staff and then terminating everybody after we had the project wrap up. Like that's not the type of business I wanted to be in, like how I wanted to run my firm. So every time we'd win a big project, I'd have to ramp up and then we'd have to find the work to fill and the backfill, the non-recurring work with recurring work. And so the image of the firm started to get back to a more traditional solo practitioner image of a firm, whereas I wanted to be this really cool consulting forensics type of firm, which it was but we didn't have necessarily the capacity on the resources to be able to really win the cool projects. We won a lot of cool projects. Don't get me wrong, but we wanted to do even more of that work. You made a very proactive decision for really what's best for your team and your clients and what's best for your own peace of mind regarding the work you want to go after. That's, that's very commendable. That's very impressive. That's very impressive. It really is. Well, and the team came with me, so nobody lost their job out of this. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. wow. That was the one deal breaker I went to every firm with that I talked to, and I said, nobody loses their job. Okay. Now, this is too early to be asking this probably, but what are your hopes for or dreams, if you will, about how your roles will continue to develop? If you think two or three years down the line, four years down the line in the role you're in now or, the, you know, or with PKF, what, what do you see or what do you want to see? I think I just want to see the growth in the consulting practice and really help service the clients in, in, in whatever it is that we're consulting on, you know, either better understand their own individual business. You know, that's a really big value that we had at our old firm that we're bringing with us and that PKS shares as well is that clients that actually understand what's going on with their business can make well-informed decisions because the relevance of accounting is actually how good of information and decision useful information you can get out of your books and records. So having clients that can actually make decision useful information with whatever resources we're providing them or services we're providing them is really the end goal. And being able to grow that to do a myriad of different types of services for them, I think is really what I want to see have happen. And it already happens here. That's very obvious to me after even just my very little time here. But I, I of course, want to grow the department and be able to do that for even more clients. Okay. And there again, this is my ignorance, but Director of Entrepreneurial Services, is that just for the Houston market or do you, do you have a wider area of responsibility or how does that work? So we're based in Houston. Of course, we have clients outside the Houston metro, particularly Houston has a lot of international inbound and outbound companies and individuals. So while we have a local Houston office, we have an international footprint as well as because we're a member of PKF International. So we have the ability to service clients that are completely international, but of course we have just the one office of the independent firm in Houston. Okay. Okay. 
Now, one of the things I was really impressed with as a business owner myself, you've been widely recognized, if you will, in the press, <laughs> yes, so to speak. The, rec- the accounting press, though. <laughs> yeah, well, the accounting press, but I, I think one of them was the Houston Business Journal as well. And uh-huh, yeah. I, is there anything that, there again, from the manager, business owner kind of perspective, anything you could put your finger on that has just worked well for you in that area that, yeah, how, how have you gotten this recognition over the years? Because people are finding you. That's a, hard, uh, that's a hard question. I mean, I will say as when I was a solo firm owner, you have a limited budget to work with and you need to make a uh-huh. name for yourself because in CPA, in the CPA world, you're selling a service. You're selling your brand name. And so we work to build up my brand. And so hopefully that means I was successful at it. <laughs> I guess I, I can't be the, my own judge of that. That'd be a little bit of a conflict. <laughs> Okay. Well, I just had to ask because, you know, it's one thing to be on one list, but then repeatedly, and, and like I said, I know something was in the Houston Business Journal at one point, and getting well, good press also, is hard. So, so one of the, the things that I do is a lot of community service within the that's related to accounting or, or tangentially related to accounting, because I think financial literacy is extremely important. And I think the world would be a better place with a touch more financial literacy throughout the board. I think most people are afraid of the numbers because there's such a taboo about talking about money. And that means people are making uninformed decisions and not running the numbers. You know, they may have a gut feeling about the way something should be, but without running the numbers, you need to check your gut on those kinds of things is my personal opinion. And so because we've done so much volunteer work in that, and then as well as in the stuff like AICPA, which that really benefits me quite a bit because as a small firm, well, what when I was at a small firm, staying up with all the accounting standards and, and having access to some of the top minds is really hard as a solo firm. I mean, it's really hard at a big firm, let alone our little old firm. And so doing a lot of that work actually kept me very much in touch with what's going on in the profession, kept me up on standards, kept me up in current that also directly benefited my clients because I was able to keep them in front of what's happening, what's changing. If we see something that can potentially be detrimental to a client or be very costly to implement, we can get with that client and even maybe sometimes send back information to the standard setters while that process is still happening. So I think the way I've tried to help my clients has also put me in a position where I get a little bit of recognition because it's it's a different take and there's not a lot of firms at our size that are using that as a client development tool and, and a, at a benefit for the clients. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I know that we have some solo entrepreneurs that listen to the show because they've been guests <laughs> on the show and, <laughs> and I know that's a challenge for some. So thank you for, for sharing that. Now, that work that you do with financial literacy? Is that through the CPA Society there in Houston? Do they have There's a, a group or? in Houston called the Women's Resource of, of Greater oh. Houston that it's kind of like a, it provides trainers directly to other organizations that host financial literacy courses. So I've okay. worked with them in the past. I'd love to do more with them at the moment, but I'm a bit tied up in a couple other matters at the moment. So I haven't done as many classes as I'd like to do recently. Okay. I, I noticed you've been or are part-time faculty at Rice. I am. Part, also, I am part-time faculty currently, yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. How, how many classes are you teaching? Right now, I'm teaching one a semester. There was one semester okay. this past season that I taught two a semester. That was a little tough on the schedule. Okay. Yeah. 
as soon as I said that, I thought, well, part-time is probably one, but, oh, yeah, two would be, that two, would be yeah. quite a bit to manage. What, yeah, what do you taught teach, the accounting for There's a modeling class that's like an accounting for entrepreneurs modeling class, and then oh. I taught auditing last semester, and then this semester is data analytics for the Master's of Accountancy program, because Rice relaunched their accounting program. Okay. Wow. What, what keeps you doing that? I mean, I'm sure there's something about that it that you really That one's really a lot of fun. It's just a ton of fun getting in front of the students and teaching just cool stuff that you can do with accounting. You know, accounting has this perception of being boring and humdrum. It's what I think people assume are accounting, but I don't find it to be that at all. I find it cool and exciting and lots of cool emerging technologies and really cool things you can do with the numbers and the information. And I usually get pretty jazzed about it. And I think it's a lot of fun to show the students that the accounting can actually be really exciting. A lot of job security mixed in with that. So there's not a lot of professions that you have that job security mixed with exciting. That's true. That's true. I recorded another episode this morning, and we were just talking about how so many people, the advice they receive earlier in their career is, or early in their student career is, get a degree in accounting because you'll always have a job. (laughs) It's just one of those fields. It really is. Well, I know your your journey is really still just beginning, but if you could go back in time and, and give your younger self a piece of advice based on what you know now, what do you think that might be? Oh, I would say probably kind of keep a little bit more even keel on some things. I don't know if you can tell, but I I get fairly excited about things. That's really (laughs) great. And it's also sometimes kind of one of those best qualities and worst quality type of things. So there's some situations in life that I can think back that I got overexcited, send an email that I probably should have slept on. Those are probably the ones of like, okay, take a deep breath. We'll sleep on that, send it out in the next morning if it's still appropriate. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, for what it's worth, it sounds like you've done a great job of harnessing that excitement and, and making it work for you. So thank you. Well, I wasn't sure if we would have time for this, but you mentioned the women's resource of Greater Houston. Are are there any other nonprofit interests you'd like to highlight or anything else that you've been involved with here recently? Oh, I'm sure there are, and I'm just kind of blanking a little bit. There's a lot of entrepreneurship accelerators that I'm involved with, and so I'm usually pretty excited about those I teach in. I think I've taught in four different accelerators in the Houston area, and Houston's becoming this up-and-coming startup community. So those excite me a fair amount. There are a myriad of different ones. They usually run through the universities and uh, Texas Medical Center. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure what you were referring to there at the moment. Okay. Are you generally... Instructing on accounting-related matters? or Yep. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of business owners, new business owners, know their technology really well. They don't necessarily know the back office component of it. And so, you know, a lot of them don't realize that they have to actually plan for and pay for payroll taxes and stuff that's, you know, if you came up through a traditional business background, it just seems second nature. But if you came through a technology background and have just a really amazing idea for something that's going to save the world. And some of these companies really do have that kind of technology and capacity and capabilities, but they also don't know that this basic business component, or they do have the basic business and just don't have as much time or enough time to, to take care of everything. And so just helping them through that has been very interesting, even if it's not a paid position, just through the teaching at the accelerators. Sure. Yeah, you're doing good for the community, definitely. 
Well, I want to make sure we're respectful of your time, and I know you have a lot going on these days. So I end every podcast with the same three questions. The first one's usually the easiest for people. What has been your proudest moment? Well, in a career sense, of course, you know, family sense, the you know, regular family ones, but from a sure. career sense, I would say the, the AICPA Maximo Award. A lot of times, I'm, as you can probably guess, fairly young. And so a lot of times, younger professionals, you have to almost make up for being young and really prove that you're competent. That was the first time I had won an award for being young. It was, it was a little bit different for me for being recognized that I was young in a positive way, not in a negative way. Hmm. Okay. That's the Maximo Award? Yeah, that's the AICPA Young CPA of the Year Award. Oh, okay. Okay. Wonderful. Well, I know you hit on this a little bit earlier, but I always like to get a good story around it. Tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course, because that's, that's where the value is. But frankly, the bigger, the better. We, we like the colossal kind of mistakes. <laughs> well, the good news is I haven't had colossal, colossal mistakes along the way because usually I see mistakes as a learning opportunity to prevent it from happening the next time. So usually I don't have colossal ones. The one I was referencing about an email, it was actually still when I was working on Capitol Hill and I sent an email to my boss with a little bit of a tirade. And even though my point was an accurate point. I presented in such a terrible, terrible way. I still have nightmares about this one, that it completely overshadowed the point I was trying to make. I got called into the boss's office with the printed copy of the email. I'm pretty sure it made it into my HR file. And of course, the whole point I was trying to make completely was not addressed, not recognized. It was completely dismissed because I so ineptly presented the the information and got myself in a ton of trouble. So I think I learned there that it's all about how you present the information. You could have something really constructive to say, but if you say it in a really negative way, it doesn't matter. You're not getting heard on that one. So, and, you know, I once hit reply to an email that I thought I forwarded, but luckily I didn't say anything bad in that. That was just more of, does this person sound really angry? And and turns out they go, yeah, I'm really angry. And it's like, ooh, At least it was, I got the lesson on reply versus forward on a fairly, fairly innocuous. I didn't put any, say anything that put my foot in my mouth, but it was still something that they were an, an angry email about something that was outside of my control, but still something I had to deal with. So okay. I'd say making sure you're careful on your emails, learn my lesson on type of only things that you want to see on the front page of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lesson in there for all of us because this is at least the fourth greatest mistake that involved email on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty common. Well, I'm very lucky that that's probably one of my greatest mistakes. I could have far, far, far worse. That's true. That's true. Well, last question, and then we will close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Actually, when I went off to college, my mom said, I don't care what you major in, just take one accounting class because you'll need it no matter what you do. And Lo and behold. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Cheers to mom. (laughs) Yeah. That was very insightful. Well, thank you again so much for your time. I know it obviously is a busy season for you, so I I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show, even with all the changes going on. Thank you very much, Danielle. Of course. 
Well, for our audience, this has been another episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. If you haven't yet visited our home website, please do so. You can find that at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. We'll have the show notes for this episode, plus we have all our other episodes, of course, as well. On that note, Danielle, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? No, thank you for having me, and it's been a pleasure. Hopefully you enjoy accounting. Wonderful. Well, thank you to the audience. We'll see everybody next week. There's more to come.